The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Make a run to her local pet store to get some cat food. But as she entered, there's this beautiful parrot sitting there. And as she approached the beautiful parrot, she looked at him said, what a beautiful bird. But she didn't know the, bear, the parrot spoke. And he said, you're the ugliest woman I ever seen. The woman kind of was taken back and was a little offended. So what'd you say? He said, you're the ugliest woman I ever seen. So she demanded to see the owner. So the owner comes out. She told him what happened. The owner apologized, said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. He was embarrassed. Said, let me deal with this parrot. So he takes him out in the back, you know. She continues her shopping, and 15 minutes later, he comes out with the parrot, and the parrot's quiet. He's not saying anything anymore. And as she was checking out and leaving out the door, she kind of glanced at the parrot again, and the parrot said, hey, lady. Said, what? Said, you know. (laughs) Now, most people... And apparently parrots evaluate people and other people on external appearances. External, how they look, how they behave. But the Bible clearly teaches, as we read in 1 Samuel 16:7, says, For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in John 7, 24, the Bible tells us, do not judge according to appearance. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 7, Paul asks a question. He says, do you look at things according to their outward appearance? And then he continues in verse 12, it says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. So there are people who commend themselves on the basis of their outward appearance. People are satisfied on how they behave externally. They are people who evaluate others visibly in terms of maybe even religious behavior. And this behavior is typical of a fallen man, fallen mankind, because we're basically satisfied with the externals. But we know that God is not so concerned with the outside as he is with the inside because the outside is only validating so far as it's representative of what's on the inside. And the remaining verses here that we're going to be looking at from 21 to 48 in the next couple of weeks, basically, Lord gives us standards for living, continues with the standards of living in his kingdom. And it's almost like he redefines them, but really he's not redefining. He's just reemphasizing what the divine standard was in the given law. He wants to stay, state what the intentional or the original meaning meant. And infinitely it's revealing more and more that it has to do with internal. It's more important than the outside. And God is concerned with the heart. If you remember in verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness 
exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And at that time, we discussed last week, they were the most holiest people around. So how can you be more? And we discussed that the Pharisees had a righteousness that was external. It was redefined. It was partial. And what Jesus is doing here is he's continuing with that in the verses 21 through 48. God is concerned with what you really are, not what you appear to be. And the righteousness of Pharisees was external. They had lots of rituals, lots of ceremonies. So they had this external thing, but nothing internal. So God is looking for something internal. And folks, this is not something new. I gave you some scripture last Sunday in the Old Testament, but I want to give you some more scriptures that this is nothing new. You know, what was the problem? We'll discuss that in a little bit. Why couldn't they interpret this? The scribes, we talked about them. They were the theologians of the time. They studied all the scriptures and so forth. But in 1 Kings in 839, it says, Then hear heaven, you dwelling place, and forgive and act, and give everyone according to all his ways. And then he says, Whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all sons of men. And so we see in this verse in Kings that God's response to not a basis of outward deeds, but on a basis of the heart, which God alone knows. In Second, uh, First Chronicles 28, uh, verse 9 says, The Lord searches all hearts, understands all the intents of the thoughts. So again, he's emphasizing the inside. In Second Chronicles 16, 9, it says that he shows himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Not my deeds or my rituals, but whose heart is loyal to him. That's something on the inside. And Psalm 7, 9 says, God tests the hearts and minds. In Proverbs 16, 2, it says, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. I'm a good person. I never killed anyone. I never committed adultery. That's self-righteousness. But it says, but the Lord waits the spirit. In Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. And also in Revelation 2, 23, it says, I am he who searches the minds and hearts. So what's the standard that God set in the Old Testament and the New Testament? And this is really clear, critical because the standard that God sets to evaluate us is not by our deeds or how good we look on Sunday morning or how much money we put in the plate or how much good we do in the community. The standard is the heart. That's the message is cleared. Now, God is concerned with external behavior. Yes, absolutely. But only as just as its outgrowth of internal, if you say, righteousness. God evaluates the heart. And really, this is a powerful section here. And before we get started, I think some of you are familiar with this passage. But I might confess, you know, we're all sinners. We say all that. And we need grace, as we sang this morning, and as Judy and Tori did. 
But there are sins that I can assign to. I say, yes, I'm a sinner because of X, Y, and Z. But, and really, until I kind of deeply studied this passage, I never assigned a sin of murder to myself, right? I never, you know, we're all sinners, yes, but I never committed that crime. It's interesting, and keep that in your head, because I'm sure never none of you, any murderers here? I'm sure nobody assigns murder to themselves. This is really a powerful section, and I think really the verse 20 is the key here, as we read last Sunday, because God's saying it has to be higher than the Pharisees and the scribes. God's standard is higher than yours. So what you know as righteousness is not acceptable. And Jesus literally is hitting the Pharisees right between the eyes. Their hearts were filthy with all kinds of filth, but yet their deeds were religious. They were. They tithed. They, they fasted. And God looks at the heart. So I'm going to call this section that we're going to study all the way till the end, it's what's inside that counts. And let's look verses 21-22 today. And it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. You know that man's first crime was homicide. Genesis 4.8 talks about Cain. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and killed him. First crime was homicide, really. And since that day, murder has been constant part of human society. You know, it's really murder has become such a commonplace in our society unless it's uh, somebody famous or there's like something crazy, some school shooting, or there's multiple murders at once. It doesn't really make the news and, you know, may make the news local news. Some murders don't even make the news. And our world is getting worse and worse all the time. Murders going up. All kinds of murder. Abortion. Suicides going up. It's a serious problem. And Jesus says, as you have heard, again in verse 21, said to those of the old, you shall not murder. Well, where did that come from? Well, obviously God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 13, says you shall not murder. But Scripture has a lot more to say about murder than just don't kill. In fact, if we go back to the book of Genesis, in fact, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, it says, Whoever sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for the image of God. For in the image of God he made man. 
So there's more about murder. It talks about here the penalty for murder, and then also gives the seriousness of this crime. Why? Penalty was death for the killer, and the reason the punishment was severe is because man is made in God's image. When you take a life of a fellow human being, assault you, assault the image of God. You assaulted the image of God, and there's a serious penalty. So in Genesis 9, really, capital talks about capital punishment. Capital punishment is not murder. So I know there's debates going on about that, but it's not murder. Not according to the Bible. You see it here. Does not refer to capital punishment. It's, you know, taking life under divine allowance. It also does not refer to just wars. Some people teach that Christians shouldn't pick up guns or go to wars or go military. I know wars right now sometimes are not really technically just. So I want to refer to the just war. We see that through times in where Israel goes to war and God used Babylon as his iron fist to smash the Israelites too uh, during the war to punish them for uh, not obeying his laws and so forth. And I also don't believe that Exodus 20, 13, where it says you should not murder, has anything to do with self-defense. So if you kill somebody in self-defense, that's not murder. You have the right to protect your image, image of God for yourself. And for Deuteronomy, we're not going to get into all these things, but I just want to make a point that there's a lot more about murder than to just do not kill. And also, if you kill somebody by accident, it's not premeditated. David. In, in, in Deuteronomy, you can find that you should not take the man's life because it was not premeditated murder. But in Exodus 21.14, it says, But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him with treachery, then you shall take him to my altar, and he may die. Again, God reiterates here punishment of capital punishment. In Numbers 35.16, But if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he's a murderer. And then it says, The murderer shall be put to death. So if you take any kind of instrument, crush somebody's call, or get into a fight with a baseball bat, you kill him, you're a murderer. And you can also read in verses 17 through 20 over there in Numbers 35, it describes more in detail. So there's other situations where murder occurs. But again, the Bible says that the very first human crime was murder. Cain, as we read in Genesis 4.8, Abel, Cain rose against Abel and killed him. And then you see in Genesis 4.9 says, the Lord said to Cain, Where, where's Abel, your brother? Cain said, I don't know, I'm not his, not his keeper. I'm not my brother's keeper. And then in Genesis 4.10, God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So the second crime was a lie. 
First one was murder. God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me. Now, if we study Scripture and some of these, you know, I can go in great detail, but I just want you to understand how God feels about murder. It's forbidden. It's punishable by death. And really, murder was authored by devil himself. In John 8, 44, we read, you are of your father the devil and desires of your father you want to do. And it says he was a murderer from the beginning. So all murder is basically authored by Satan. We also find something else about murder in Matthew 15, verse 19. Where do these murders come from? From out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, etc., etc., etc. And you see, men themselves are accountable for murders they commit, just as we're accountable for any other sin. But we cannot, even though it's authored by Satan, we can't blame him. We share that in our fallen human nature. It's in our heart. That's why Jesus is so concerned what's going on on the inside. All this stuff, murder, thefts, all this other stuff, doesn't happen because of, you know, somebody was raised in a bad neighborhood, because their father or mother were bad or something like that. It happens because of our sinful nature. And in Romans 1.29, it says that the man's been given over to this probate mind, and that's what the result is. It says, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Really, most of these things you can express externally, but all these things are also internal. In Galatians 5.21, Paul tells us that the murder is an act of a flesh and says envy, murderers, drunkards, all these things, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in Proverbs 6, 16, and 17, you know, this is where six things that the Lord hates, and it lists in verse 17 and 16, says, six things the Lord hates, seven are abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and then he says, hands that shed innocent blood. And if we look at Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15, God shows us the seriousness view he has on murder. He said, blessed are those who do his commandments that may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city so they can enter the kingdom of God. But then he says, but outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immortal, and murderers, adulterers. And he says, whoever loves and practices a lie. So we see the seriousness of this crime. 
There's more to it than just murder. There's other things that we discuss, capital punishment and things like that. But God says this eternal state, the kingdom of God, is not a place for murderers. And there's lots of murderers in the Bible. If you study the Bible, David, for example, was a murderer, wasn't he? We just read about Cain. New Testament has several murderers. Judas, Herod, King, you know, King killed all the babies, Barabbas, and so forth. And through the biblical history and through modern history, you just turn on your news, the world is filled with murderers. And again, if you look at 521, it says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. Now, what Jesus is saying here, you believe murder is wrong because if you do it, you're going to be in danger of judgment. And I think all the Pharisees that were listening and the scribes, they could say amen to that. They'll say we're against all this murder. It's taught in our traditional uh, um, rabbi, uh, rabbis thought that the tradition that murder is an evil thing. But listen to the key thing here. They thought that they did not commit murder is one of the ways they convinced themselves that they were righteous. Just like I said, I never assigned murder to myself. And because they never killed anyone, They justify themselves as righteous. Isn't that one of the easiest ways to justify ourselves? Every, every single one of us could say, well, I'm not that bad. I never killed anyone. Right? There's this terrible breed of humanity that does that, but I'm a different kind. I don't murder. And we would identify with the Pharisees at this point. But Jesus said in verse 20, if we go back to it, he says if they're identifying themselves and they're justifying themselves that they're righteous because they don't murder, he says, for you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So if the righteous said we don't murder the Pharisees and the scribes, we're righteous because we don't do that, he says... Your righteousness needs to exceed that. Not murdering is simply not enough. Do you see the point that Jesus is making here? So if you're righteous, that's fine. We don't murder. Yeah, you took God's thing, even though you took it out of context. But you must exceed that kind of righteousness. And that's what he does in these verses, 21 through 48. He gives us six illustrations, and we'll look at them. And it here says, you have heard, if you look at verse 21, I want to point out a couple of things. You have heard that it was said to those of the old. Jesus here is not necessarily reminding them of the commandment. 
He's not reflecting or referring to the law of Moses, but to the traditions of the rabbis. And they had this system, said, your traditional system, your teaching says, you are not to kill because you will be in danger of judgment. And that's the tradition that's been passed down. You're going to get in trouble. Now, let me explain some of the things, the back story of this so it makes sense to us because also Reformation Day is coming up on October 31st and the condition of the Jew at this time was like the people in the Reformation. And what I mean by that is prior to the Reformation, Scripture was not translated into people's languages at the time. So when you went to a Catholic church, Catholic Mass, which was encompassed the entire Christianity at that time, that's all there was, you know, if you were Christianity, you were Catholic. The whole thing was in what language? Anybody know? The whole thing was in Latin. So you weren't there, you sat there, there's no Bible to speak in your hands. So whatever the priests read, not only that, they read in Latin. Nobody understood, nobody read it. They don't know what they're talking about. Then the priest would expound on this Latin text, and people would simply believe the priest on whatever he said. He could have said, I love hot dogs. Who knows? And for centuries, Catholic Church developed kind of the same system, but that system was never really investigated by people. And all because they didn't have the Bible in their own language. Now, what was happening here in the day, today we have the Bible, we can check against anything, you know, any false uh, teaching. But what was happening in Jesus' day, you have to understand their background. They were in captivity in Babylon for how long? For 70 years. And during that time, most people lost their Hebrew language. For example, it's been 30 years I've been in America. I'm losing my Russian language. I really am. So I have this new language that's coming out. It's called Ru English. You know, half Russian, half English, and I hope you understand it. And what happened is they picked up a language known as Aramaic. So when they came back from captivity, most people spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. We know that most of the New Testament is written in Greek. But the people, Jewish people, spoke Aramaic. So they were kind of unfamiliar with the Hebrew language. So the rabbis come along, do the same thing. They would read Hebrew, which people didn't understand 100%. Rabbis would interpret it. You couldn't argue because you didn't have a Bible. You didn't have, you know, people didn't have Bibles like we do today. So he's saying you heard, whole, you, you heard them 
say this old thing, this oral tradition that they passed down, but it's not the written Word of God. So the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees would tell them what it meant. And what did that do? That gave him tremendous, tremendous power. Right now I'm preaching. You can take your Bible. You can go back and study the Scripture yourself and come back and say, hey, Cornet, you're 100% accurate or you're 100% wrong or something in the middle. But people didn't have that, so they went on trust. So if you look at Nehemiah 8.8, 8, when they were returning back, they said, we want to hear from the law. Remember, they said, bring the book of the law and so forth. And it says, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And Ezra, Nehemiah, it says they gave sense and helped them understand the reading. And the reason they did that is because people couldn't understand it. And that's what was happening until Jesus' day. People themselves did not read the Word of God, Old Testament. So they listened to the traditions of rabbis that passed them off as true Scripture, and they perverted it. So that's why he says in verse 21, you have heard it, it was said to those of the old, you shall not murder. Now, sometimes they take things and they teach them properly. What am I mean by that? You know, the things that you shall not murder, that's biblical. They were right on point, right? And it says the danger of judgment. We talked about that in Numbers 35, 30. It talks about capital punishment. If you kill somebody and so forth, there's punishment. So, in a sense, this tradition that they passed on was true. It was right on point. It was basically scriptural. But the point Jesus is making here, because it has to pass the righteousness of the Pharisees, he's saying it's not enough. It's not enough. You've taken part of God's law, you interpret it only partially, and then you satisfied yourself with keeping your partial interpretation of it. Do you see that? I'm not a murderer, I'm righteous. And what he's saying is, you teach and says, you must not murder. Now watch, because you will be in danger being punished by civil court. There's not one mention of God's holiness. So that's why Jesus is saying it doesn't go far enough. Their full interpretation of the sixth command was was. Don't kill because you're going to get in trouble with the civil court. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get a lot of trouble. It was very superficial. And Jesus is saying their interpretation here stops short. And again, I never assigned murder to me, to myself, as one of the sins in my heart or sins that I've committed. So that's what they were doing. They were self-righteous, self-justified, perfectly happy about themselves because we don't kill, right? That's one of the easiest ways to say, I'm not all that bad. But God, again, looks on the inside. 
And in Psalm 51, 6 says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And remember in Deuteronomy, it says, 6, 5, You shall love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, with all your strength. You should Lord love the God with all your inner parts. In Leviticus 19.18, he reminds them, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. How come they didn't tie these things to you shall not murder? In other words, part of God's law that they left out was the internal part about murder. It wasn't enough for you not to kill because God, again, is concerned what's going on on the inside. And they restricted the scope of God's commandments to an earthly court, court and not what God has to say about it. So in verse 22, Jesus expands says, you're not a murderer. You have heard, and it's partly right, you don't want to be outwardly a murderer. But he says, let me explain to you what it truly means. And he says in verse 22, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So you see, you can't just justify yourself because you don't kill. He said, in effect, who's a murderer? He says, I'll tell you who the murderer is. Who's angry with his brother? Or angry with anybody? You're a murderer. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's devastating. It's, what? You equating that to murder? So it strips the Pharisees kind of bare and really does a very good job on us too, doesn't it? Anger is murder's root. And so forth, and God says, anger and murder merit equal punishment. It's interesting, he says three things here. If you're angry, you'll be in danger of judgment. Raka, you'll be in danger of the council. And you call somebody a fool, we'll elaborate on these things, you're in danger of hellfire. Our Lord is saying what's going on on the inside is what God is going to judge. That's what he looks at. You see, it's possible for me to be a model, law-abiding citizen, but to be as guilty as a murderer that's sitting on death row. Did you know that? It's possible for a person who has never been involved in so much as a fist fight to have a more murderous spirit than the actual serial killer. In the deepest feelings of their hearts, they have anger, some of these people, to such a degree that they're 
hatred. They just wish this person was dead. They may hate more than murderers hate, except they just don't have the opportunity to kill, or they're just scared just like these people here. You'll be in judgment. I'm going to get, if I murder, I'm going to go to jail, right? Sometimes I say, God, you need to fix this, because if I fix this, I'm going to jail. They don't have the opportunity. So who's a murderer? Watch some of you get offended, all of us. Every single one of us, according to the Bible, is a murderer. And 1 John 3.15 says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Now, I want you to understand that the word brother here is not used as we understand it, like brothers and sisters in Christ and so forth, because it's a broad term in social relations, because when people were listening to the sermon, they would have no clue understand what brothers and sisters in Christ means yet. So he's saying if you have hatred, you're a murderer. You have anger. You're a murderer. In God's eyes, it's no different than somebody that's actually going out and doing the crime. And it's amazing to me how we justify ourselves. We justify ourselves. Even the worst kind of people justify themselves and say, I'm not that bad. You know, since I love history so much, anybody heard of a two-gun Crawley? 1931, he's 19 years old. Killed a lot of people. Killed police officers, wouldn't even blink. And then they found him in his apartment with his girlfriend, and it was New York. They had like 300 cops out there, and they, they had a shootout. And they didn't kill him. But they wounded him badly, and he was arrested. And they found a little note, a blood-stained note that he had in his coat pocket. And it said this, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. This is a person that killed a lot of people. You can look them up, Wikipedia, not right now when you get home. It's a true story. But, you see, even the worst of people will try to justify ourselves. Who is he kidding? Now, he was later executed, but 19 years old. You see, the problem is this with our hearts. Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own sight. That's the problem. But the Lord weighs the Spirit. Again, Jesus is saying, if you don't even do the killing, you're far full of anger, hate, you're a murderer. You see, hate brings you closer to murder it's, than any other emotion. It does. And hate is really an extension of what? Anger. Anger leads to murder. 
and it's a common source of killing. A little boy was doing his homework, I'm told, and he asked his dad, Dad, do you know what causes wars? Why do people go to war? Why do people kill each other in wars and so forth? And father began to, you know, teach his son a lesson to answer the question. And he said, for example, in World War I, he said, Germany invaded Belgium. And that's how war starts. And he proceeded to talk, and the wife comes in. She says, oh, you knew nothing. That's not how wars start. Here's how they start. And she began to answer the question. And he says, did he ask you? He asked me. What do you know? You don't know anything. You got like 10th grade education. She got mad, threw some dishes on the floor, and stormed out of the room and shut the door and so forth. And the dad proceeded. Now, let me finish telling you how wars start. And the son says, no need, Dad. I know. Hatred, anger, that's how wars start. And we sit here, we come, we don't think we commit these kind of crimes. We're righteous before God. But have you ever been angry at someone? Hated somebody? And again, he uses three illustrations here I want to point out. And verse 22 says, angry with his brother without cause, you're going to be in danger of judgment. Second illustration, he says, if you say raka, you'll be in danger of the council. And third illustration, he says, if you say fool, you'll be in danger of hellfire. So he compares all these things to murder. So there's this evil and danger of anger. From Scripture, from Jesus' life, we also want to kind of point out, Jesus does not prohibit every kind of anger. We need to understand that. It was righteous anger that Jesus had when he cleansed the temple, right? Some people say, well, Jesus, if, you know, if it's hatred and anger, then Jesus sinned. Absolutely not. In Matthew 21, 12, and 13, it says, And Jesus went into the temple, and God drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables, money changers, and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you made it to a den of thieves. So he had righteous anger because he was defending God's word, his temple. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.26, he says, be angry. Be angry. But the key is, do not sin. Although this principle is abused and misapplied, but it is possible to have righteous anger. And folks, faithfulness to Christ and following Christ in your life will sometimes demand it. It really would. You know, in our days where peace and harmony at any cost. We don't want to offend anybody. You know, this cancel culture. We don't want to get canceled. Don't say anything. But I think we should be showing some anger against some things that are happening. Things that are happening in our country. Things that are happening in our communities, our schools. Things that are happening in our churches, folks. 
Those things should make you angry. Many trends in our society, many philosophies, the standards, what our kids are being taught in school and elementary schools and so forth. We should be challenged to have righteous indignation, not be afraid to stand up and say it. There's attack on the kingdom and the glory of God. And it's okay to be angry. It just has to be righteous anger. And Psalm 711 says, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. He's angry with them. So in order for us to have righteous anger, what do we have to be mad about? Sin. So if you're mad about something else, that's not righteous indignation. So if you don't have that kind of anger, Jesus says that kind of anger is a form of murder. And to be guilty before the civil court, which is the first illustration, you're going to be found guilty of murder, right, if you committed murder. Well, if you're angry, you're going to be found guilty of murder in the same court for being angry. And that's a tremendous statement to me because it forces us to look on the inside. Now, I don't know, and I never heard of a civil court condemning or putting somebody to a death penalty for getting angry, right? We know civil courts put people to uh, murder or something to that effect. They'll give them capital punishment, but not for anger. But God is sitting on his throne And he says, the one who's guilty, who's angry, you're a murderer. Then the second illustration is really not just anger, but danger of slander. He says in verse 22, whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. What does that mean? Well, whatever it means, we'll get to that in a second, but God is saying, if you say that, You're going in front of the council. Same penalty. Now, raka is an interesting term because it's very hard for us to translate. In other words, it doesn't mean anything in sort of a term or derision. It doesn't really translate, but people at that time knew what it meant. It was a malicious term, and basically it means lots of things kind of combined into one. It could be a brainless idiot, calling somebody worthless or telling them they're worthless, they're fools, empty-headed, etc., etc. But this is a verbal expression, a slander against the person. It's kind of like we read in Psalm 140, verse 3, where it says, "...to sharpen their tongues like a serpent, the poison of asps under their lips." That's the type of word. This is what the soldiers were doing when they were mocking Jesus when he was being crucified. Basically, they were saying, Raka in Matthew 27, 29, in verses 29 through 31, it says, when they have twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and read it on his right hand, they bowed the knee before him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of Jews. 
Then they spat at him, and they took reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe of him and put on his clothes on him and let him away to be crucified. They mocked him. They're saying, you're, you're a king of Jews. You're worthless. You're a fool. You're an idiot. It's a word where someone despises another. It's a slanderous person and will be guilty in front of the council. Well, what's the council? That's the Supreme Court. That's the Jewish highest court of justice in ancient Jerusalem known as Sendrahin, where they had 70 Pharisees and rabbis and so forth sitting on there. And they heard the greatest crimes. And this is what happened to Stephen, right? When they falsely accused him too, they brought him in front of the council. If you look at Acts 6.10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Stephen out there preaching, making him look like no authority. They couldn't resist any of it. So what'd they do? In verse 11, it says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against the Moses and God. So let's slander him. And then in verse 12, they said, They stirred up the people. Look what kind of people they stirred up. The elders, the scribes. And they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to this council. So they slandered him. And what was the verdict of that council? murder. So when you do those, do those things, you're just as guilty. And the last thing he says in verse 22, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. What you're doing there is you're in danger of condemning a character. And really in the Hebrew Bible, word fool is the one that rebelled against God. So to call somebody a rebel against God, now if it's true, you did them a favor. But if you did it out of hatred, remember again, what's on the inside? What's the motive? Why are you calling them a fool? What's the motive? If it's because you don't like the person or you hatred, then you're a murderer. Let me give you a couple of, a couple of examples of this, and I won't read all the verses, but Matthew twenty three seventeen, Jesus calls the Pharisees fools and blinds. And then two verses down in verse 19, it says the same thing, fools and blinds. It wasn't wrong for him to say those things and call them fools. He's not going to be in danger of hellfire because what he was saying was true, wasn't it? And Psalm 14.1 says, the fool said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Psalm 53.1 says the same thing, the fool said in his heart, there is no God. When Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, do you remember those? He met up with some people, and they started talking about what was happening in Jerusalem and blah, 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 and they're like not knowing the Scripture. What, what did Jesus say to them in Luke 24, 25? Look with me. Then he said to them, Oh, foolish ones. Oh, foolish ones. Slow of heart and to believe that all the prophets had spoken. So, for example, folks, if I stand in my pulpit here, and say to you, there is no other way to get into heaven besides Jesus. If you die without Christ, you are going to hell. 
If you continue your life in sin, God may damn you. But that's different than me saying go to hell, right? Or God damn you, or so forth. That's different. I can say it as a loving warning, but I cannot say it as an expression of malicious hatred, you see. But what's the difference? The heart. I can't see your heart. But people fool themselves. They forget that. Why, why, why am I really saying these things to you guys? Am I really saying this because I love you and I want to see you in heaven? Or maybe I'm saying it because I don't like you and I want you to go to hell. God sees the intents of the heart. So when we have these anger, we say, Rockas, you're worthless. And the next thing he says, he talks about hellfire. He talks about hellfire and says, the word hell in that verse 22, really it's translated to a Greek word and actually a Russian word, Guiana. And Guiana is a word with history. It's used all over the New Testament. And really, it referring to the Valley of Hinnon. What the Valley of Hinnon is, is where Ahaz has introduced fire worship to a heathen god, Melech. And what they do is they would bring children and they burn them with, with fire. In 2 Chronicles 28.3 says, He burned incest in the Valley of Son of Hinnon, and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So they're bringing in all these wicked gods and so forth of other nations. And in that valley, he erected this huge statue to a pagan god, Melech. And on the altar, they would lay sacrifices down and children, and they burned them alive. And then Jeremiah... They changed the name of it. And Jeremiah 19.6 says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall be no more called Trophid or the valley of the son of Hinnon, but the valley of slaughter. And later on, part of his godly reforms, King Josiah tore down that entire valley, all those false gods and so forth. And do you know what happened to it? It became a city garbage dump. All the ruins, and they just threw all garbage down there. And they had this public incinerator that burned all the time. There was smoke. There was fire. It never went out. It was a disgusting place. It stunk. Have you ever drove by a city dump? And we have things in place that, you know, kind of clean this stuff up but it still stinks. In this place, there was also worms. It's just a really disgusting place. So God used it as an example. Really, in Mark 9.44, you'll find the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Same thing in 9.48. So this valley became identified in people's minds as this filthy, accursed place where useless and evil things were destroyed. So that's why he's saying you'll be thrown in, in there. 
You'll be cursed into hell. If you're angry, you're malicious, you hate people, you say you're worthless, don't ever say that to your kids, folks, your grandkids, anybody. If you slander people or you curse them, God says in my book, crimes, those crimes, as the same as murder, even though you never physically murdered anyone. Now, I think that's a good place to start. Stop today, and we'll continue on talking about the fellowship that God talks about in the next verses. But as Christians, folks, we must examine our hearts. We must refrain from angry words. Right? What's going on in our country today? If I may get political for two seconds here, we got the Trump haters and we got the Biden haters. Well, let me tell you something. In God's book, you're all murderers. You're all murderers. So sometimes we don't think of that as a sin. Well, because your anger is directed at a person. Think about those things. Examine our hearts, because Peter writes, and this is not on the slide, but you can write it down, 1 Peter 4.15 says, uh, but let no one suffer as a murderer. Have you thought about that? I'm a murderer. Let's pray.